0: Welcome back to the 147th episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex, and today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including why small-dollar donors have a really, really powerful impact in both political parties. You know, there's an argument against the hunky-dory conservative that I really want to jump into, and then... We're going to talk about China and how their stock market is not looking good. And of course, we will end today with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive positive. ready to take on the day. Now, that's enough rambling from me. Let's jump in to our daily debate. So I think I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but a few years ago, someone told me there was going to be a split in the Republican Party. And it turns out they were right. Didn't believe them at the time, or at least not as much as I should have, but it turns out they were right. So my question to you is, what do you see as the main reason that this divide is becoming more pronounced? And can it be rectified? Can they be reunified? Or are they just bound to slowly drift apart and some of the different wings may start to really describe themselves as completely different political parties? Who knows? We'll see how it all comes out. The real interesting one is, if they do divide, who gets the title of Republican and who doesn't? All right, so let's jump to our first article that comes from The Dispatch. Why small dollar donors have such outsized influence on our politics. When I first read this, I was very intrigued. I won't lie to you, because obviously the political system that we live in is a little bit newer. We have what, within the last 12 years, there's, well, I guess at this rate, it's probably been 15 years, that we have a ruling by the Supreme Court that allows large companies, large donors to give, or corporations, to give a lot of money to political candidates. And a lot of the talk that you hear from the more progressive side of the aisle, and a lot of the talk that even some Republicans, more populist Republicans, have been talking about is how, The large corporations have these big interest groups, lobbyists. They have a lot of sway over politicians. And then you hear something like this, and it's like, wait, small-dollar donors actually are the ones with the outsized control, even though they're not giving all this money? And I thought it was a really interesting argument. And I want to run you guys through it, because there's some points in here that I think the author makes really well. But there are also some other points where I really want to push back. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Just because these small dollar donors, they have the ability to really give each candidate their opinion and make sure they know where they stand on certain issues. Remember, is the candidate going to really take the opinion of the small dollar donors who are giving a good chunk of change, $2 million, seriously? Or is he going to take seriously the opinion or the point of view of the person who is giving him $3 million. Now, the author's not really saying that just because someone gives more money, you're going to take their opinion more seriously. And I think that's really what he's getting at here with the outsized amount of power that he believes that these small dollar donors have. But it's an argument that needs to be delved into a little bit further. So let's go to a first quote that talks about how the current political situation is so we can get a good understanding of what's going on nowadays. Quote, There's an approach to political questions that the conservative in me rebels against. Let's call it the you-can't-have-too-much-of-a-good-thing fallacy. Virtually every popular idea in American life has cheerleaders for its fallacy. You've surely heard someone that says something like... The only cure to the problem with free speech is more speech, or you can never have too much inclusion or diversity. Broadly speaking, I take the opposite point of view on nearly all such claims. It doesn't mean I oppose free speech or diversity any more than I oppose cheesecake or scotch. Rather, I subscribe to the view that life, and especially politics, is full of trade-offs. All medicines or poisons are determined by the dose. So what he's trying to elucidate here, what he's trying to show here and really preface with is, hey, I'm not actually saying that small dollar donors are bad overall. I'm not saying that they have so much control over the candidates that it's going to be the end all be all. It's going to shift them in really far directions to the left or to the right. He's saying. Everything in moderation, that we should have a good amount of small donors, we should have a good amount of corporate sponsors, of people who have interest in a particular legislation, and it really does highlight what the situation in these parties is, that they are getting money from all different sorts of areas. They're getting their policy positions from all sorts of areas, from lots of different people who have interest in their region where they're, or there. Let's be clear, if they're in the Senate, one of the Senate districts or one of the House districts, if they're in the House, we have a large majority of people that affect these politics. And some people who come from out of state but just really want to pressure somebody or really want to talk about a very particular issue that could possibly affect their state. But they know more that they have a champion, even if it doesn't directly affect their constituents. So. That's how I see it currently. I see that there's a wide variety of people that influence every single person. But I also subscribe to the idea that the people with the most money, the ones who are offering to bring more jobs to your district, you're probably going to listen to more. If Lockheed Martin comes and says, that, hey, we can fulfill a contract in your district, we can provide 3,000 jobs, if the people who gave you your money in small-dollar donorships You may take their opinion seriously, and if they say, hey, we don't want Lockheed Martin here, you may at least listen, but imagine how many more people you can win over with those jobs that Lockheed Martin brings and the economic benefit you could bring to the people that you represent. It's a serious trade-off that people have to think about, and if I was in that position, it would be really hard, but I think those jobs, and even if I get ousted just because I bring some jobs to an area because my constituents didn't necessarily want it, I I may have a different opinion than some people on that one, which is you bring the jobs. You get people good-paying jobs in that situation versus, hey, my constituents don't really love this. Now, of course, you are supposed to represent your constituents, but there are bigger macro trends that need to be talked about as well. You're elected to the Senate and to Congress to represent them as directly as possible, but also to do things that somebody else can't do in that community. And maybe they don't like this because there are certain downsides. Maybe they don't like the jobs because it will be close to their home and they're afraid their property value will go down. Well, that's a really selfish reason. And obviously, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Everybody has their ability to voice their opinion, make sure that they get everything juiced out of the person that they put into office. But also then they have to ask, is it going to be better for the community? Is it going to be better for the people in the town if those jobs are brought there? Now, you know, it's a really tricky one. And I honestly don't know what I would do. I feel like I would err on the side of bringing more jobs. But at the end of the day, your constituents, especially in this situation that I'm describing... You know, they have vested interests. We are in a collect not a collectivist society, but a individualistic society. We have the power to get word to our representatives so that our interests are heard. And that's exactly what small dollar donors do. But the author is arguing that because these small dollar donors, the ones giving these this money to these candidates, they're actually the politicos. They're the ones that are constantly thinking about these issues. They're the ones that tend to be a little bit more to the right or to the left. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. That is just because they really have a passion for these issues. There's one particular issue maybe where they are really, really strong, and they see this candidate, and they want to make sure that, hey, I know your positions on these other things I agree with, but this one issue you're not passionate enough on, it, so I'm giving you money so you feel as though you have to be Liable. You have to consider me and my opinion more heavily because I'm not just a constituent who's voting for you. I'm someone who's giving you money. I'm directly helping your campaign. And what does it say about the politician if they don't value the people that are, one, supporting them, but two, giving them money? So. You know, that's one aspect of it that this author is really trying to highlight. And I want to read a quote directly from the article that gives this impression. Quote, For years I've opposed tax rules about mail-in voting and other trends that make voting too easy. Maybe it's just the journalist in me, but I think deadlines are really useful in having an election day or even an election weekend that means something would be better. I think lowering the voting age is a ridiculous idea. More our fifty year old experiment with the democratizing candidate selection, the primary system as we know it today, has gone away. Such arguments were once well received on the right and absolutely loathed on the left. They are still mostly loathed on the left, but the political age that we are living in, they're also starting to be despised by the right. For instance, last week on CNN, I made a fairly conventional point about the distorting effect of the rise in small-dollar donors have had for democracy. Candidates who depend on small dollars tend to take more polarizing positions, in part because they don't care much about electability. They push for their party to be more extreme, making the party brand less appealing to moderates. So, end quote. This is the author saying... Like I said, the people that are really passionate are the ones that are going to give their small dollars, therefore pushing the party or the candidate and then the party in a more left or right position. And they're trying to keep them really centered on the issues they care about. But guess who they're leaving behind while doing that? They're leaving behind the school, the middle-aged mom in the middle of, let's say, Texas, who cares about some of these issues but isn't particularly passionate, doesn't necessarily have enough money to be given to political candidates, and doesn't see a good reason to do so anyway. Now, this obviously is just an appeal to the middle. It's an appeal to say, hey, we just want to have a party that appeals to everybody, and we want to have a middle-of-the-road stance or as close to it as we can with little small variations that are conservative or little small variations that are liberal in nature. And honestly, I think he's falling into a fallacy himself. Why is that necessarily a good thing? Why, if one side has an opinion on an issue that is absolutely wrong and another side has an opinion on the issue that is totally right, morally right or really sticks to the truths of the world more, why do we have to appeal to the middle? And that's why I think it's a little bit of a fallacy here. Now, yes, I I do understand where he's coming from. We don't want to become so radical or either party to become so radical that they do leave behind the middle person who doesn't necessarily care about politics. That's not ideal. We want the middle person to care enough to vote in our election, to participate in our democracy, to have their voice heard. But also on certain issues, one side of the aisle is definitely wrong, or at least appears to be wrong in how they want to reach the end. I mean, that's a big difference between a lot of populists on the right and on the left. They actually, for the most part, I was on campus the other day talking to somebody. I said, "I, I agree with half the stuff you just said. I would just go about it in a different way. So, There is a unifying idea between a lot of the populists on both sides of the party. It's just about implementing and how we get to those results that would be different. And I personally believe in some cases one side has the right solution to get to that end. So I would ask the author, why do we have to appeal to the middle? Why do we have to go to the person who probably doesn't have an opinion on this issue and say, hey, you know, we're looking for your small dollars and we want you to donate to us and we're going to moderate for you when you're not going to care about these particular issues. You're not going to try to change something that probably really needs to be changed if they has such popular outreach or popular support on both sides of the aisle. No, you need to listen to the small dollars who have a strong opinion, who believe in a particular way to do it that you also believe holds true to the worldview that you have as an individual. So it's not saying that his point is overall bad. Obviously, we don't wanna get too far on one side or the other because then we start demonizing the other side even more because they're so far from way away from us politically. But also that appeal to the middle is another fallacy that I don't necessarily agree with. So that's enough on this one. Let's talk about the hunky-dory con. This article comes from The American Conservative and the title is a little bit confusing against the hunky dory cons so the author goes through this article and he's also calling out conservatives the last author was saying hey we're calling up the conservative party or at least from his point of view the conservative party it could very well apply to the liberal liberals as well he is saying hey guys you know small dollar donors they have an outsized influence we need to keep this in mind don't let them influence you too much this author is coming at the conservatives who are all hunky dory? It's okay. It's all positive. It's all good right now. Nothing needs to change. We don't have to make too big of changes. So the last one is calling out the people that are radicals or maybe more populist that are getting pulled to one side or the other. And this author is coming in saying, "Yeah, well, you know, I I think that we don't need to do blah blah blah." He's not necessarily agreeing. He doesn't give any hint. But he's honestly calling out more of the middle of the party, the people who are okay with not pushing the boundaries and getting very particular things passed, who probably aren't as populist as some of the other candidates that would be highlighted if the author had a chance in the last article. So the intro to this article is very, very funny. So I kind of want to go through that first, and then we can establish what's going on. Quote, one of the most acute pieces of media criticism came courtesy of The Simpsons several years ago. On vacation, Homer is delighted to find that his hotel offers complimentary copies of the USA Today. Quote, the newspaper that tells me everything is going to be okay. It's a pretty fair assessment of the USA Today. But it could apply equally to conservative publications and pundits singularly devoted to insisting that our economy and society are just fine the way they are. Call them the hunky-dory cons. National Review is, of course, the emblematic example. Witness the magazine's response to the virtual success of Oliver Anthony's log cabin, Cur de Cor, against Richmond and in Richmond. In the song, the country singer tells of how he is been selling my soul, working all day, overtime hours for BS pay, so I can sit out here and waste my life away, drag back home. And drown my troubles away. Uh, did you guys like my my southern accent there a little bit? I mean, maybe I didn't get it quite right, but he is from my home state of Virginia, and it's a very interesting song. But what the author is really hitting at, he is punching directly at national view, and he's saying, guys, you can't just have the status quoism. You can't just have this position that, like he said, everything is okay, nothing needs to change. And honestly, this author is contrasting with the last one, saying, no, we need to push for change. There are certain issues that we have momentum on or maybe we have a little bit of leverage on right now in the culture. We need to use that and get it through to some of our constituents that these issues are possible winners and we need to go about changing them. And to be clear, as a conservative, your opinion on most things is, Let's not change too much. That is, of course, true, but that doesn't mean the author is implying that you have to be all hunky-dory about it. You are obviously facing opposition from one side of the aisle that wants to drastically change how everything works, and I'm not saying that they want to do it all at once. I'm not saying that they're outright saying they want to constantly change or drastically change what's going on within the country, but... Their ideology leads to constant progress in moving towards something, increasing the size of government. And the conservatives' role in that government is to pull them back and to rein it in and make sure that nothing changes too much that's absolutely crazy that will completely upend the system that we live in, at least in a perfect republic democracy where we have one side that's more conservative in nature one side that's a little bit more liberal in nature. So... The idea that, hey, conservatives are going to keep the status quo, that kind of falls in line with the idea of conservatism, at least in a very theoretical sense. But what the author is trying to get at here is you don't have to be all hunky-dory about it. You don't have to be so happy and laissez about it that it kind of comes off as you don't care if anything changes and you're not necessarily upset if the status quo is upheld. Because sometimes, like I said earlier, there are winning issues that you can push back on. So it's it's one of those things where he's trying to make a nuanced argument, and he's obviously, I just read one paragraph, So I want to give him his time of day, and I want to read another quote from the article that really describes how hard it is for some American workers and how the status quo is not enough for them. And to be honest here, he sounds like a populist. He sounds like one of those guys who has been influenced by the small dollar donors that the last guy talked about, but it's a really good point. Quote, American workers on the bottom of the rungs of the labor market suffer from perversive wages, and scheduling precarity. Its symptoms include the fact that nearly half of Americans would struggle to come up with $400 in cash to pay for extingencies. Now, you've probably heard the statistic talked about all the time. It's really been thrown around by both sides of the aisle now, and it's become a main talking point, especially with credit card debt getting as high as it is in the United States right now. So, once again, we're touching on this idea that a lot of people... They don't exactly have it great right now, and there are reforms that we can do. Everything isn't just hunky-dory as it is this very second, and there are conservative solutions that could help these people out and still stick to the worldview that a lot of these elected conservatives have. Let's keep going with the quote. Quote, while one in ten would struggle to come up with funds at all, according to the Federal Reserve, plus nearly half of fast food workers and a quarter of adjunct teachers have to rely on welfare to make ends meet. But the hunky-dory cons aren't interested in statistics of this kind, only shiny abstractions and feel-good certainties from a bygone age. Hence the Washington Free Beacon's review of Tyranny, Inc., by the arch hunky Tory con Samuel Gregg. In my book, I tell the story, among others, of Elisa Fleming, a Massachusetts restaurant worker who found herself unable to care for her newborn or pay her bills owing it in to just-in-time scheduling by her employer. Her employer would inform Fleming of her schedule days before she was supposed to show up for shifts and sometimes ran well into the early morning hours. The unpredictability and short notice made finding child care impossible. End quote. So you can see how this system is not working out for people. Now, could the conservative point of view really step in here without expanding government? It's really hard to say, and honestly, I would say the author's making a little bit more of a liberal argument because any solution that I can see directly to this is going to be one where the government has more outsized influence. Maybe they put in certain regulations on businesses, or maybe they dictate to particular people that, hey, we're going to give you tax credits. We're going to give you subsidies so that you can actually raise your child. And I think there's an argument there for the good of the country that we could do something like that. But I don't necessarily think it is a conservative one in nature. And this is the push and pull between the last articles, which is we have a system where People who give small-dollar donations are able to pull the party in one direction or another. But the more populist people, they really speak about issues that were going to actually involve a little bit more government involvement in certain aspects of people's lives. Not all of their talking points are like that, but a lot of them are. And then you have the hunky-dory cons or just the normal conservative party who really stick true to those conservative principles and say, hey, we need to leave it up to the free market. Now, just to point out, luckily, Miss Alicia Fleming did get another job, but it was already after months upon months of having to pull this weird schedule and not being able to properly raise her child. And it's really unfortunate that there may be long-term stress and anxiety induced by that period where the child wasn't able to bond with her mother. So it's something we definitely need to be talking about here in the United States. And we need to really call out the people who just want to sit on their laurels and don't want to affect change in any way, shape, or form. If this author was saying the hunky-dory cons, the people that want to sit on their hands and truly keep things exactly as they are, then I would definitely agree and take issue with where they stand, because that's just presentism. That's saying we don't need to ever do anything. And also, if you're on the conservative side, it means you give up the battlefield of changing things and making things different within our society to the liberals, and they're just going to take it in their direction. I think that there is room for conservative policymaking that will positively affect people's lives and having the mentality that, oh, everything's fine right now. It's not going to lead to that positive conservative change. It's the same thing if the progressives on the other side of the aisle said, oh, yeah, no, we got everything we wanted. We, we ended up getting Medicare for all. We ended up getting a child tax credit. We ended up getting all this great green new energy bill and infrastructure planning done. And we're just going to sit because we like what we got and we're not going to affect any change whatsoever. Do you really think that would happen? No, they're going to come up with a new policy proposal. They're going to find new issues that are passionate among their sp- donors, they're small dollar donors, they're going to find new issues that those people are passionate about, and they're going to press forward on that. So this idea of presentism, that staying in the moment, that leaving everything exactly as it is, is a great thing that, oh, yeah, no, no, we're just, you know, we're here in Republican the Republican Party to be the opposition, to just make sure that everything stays exactly as it is. Not only will that fail because you won't get enough movement and passion about particular issues to even win the positions, but also there are things that you can do in a conservative way that are going to push back against policies that you probably don't like if you're a conservative that the progressives are power. Uh, putting out there, and also allow you to better people's lives without necessarily increasing the amount of government spending. A lot of the talk could be pointed towards deregulation. A lot of businesses are strung with lots of different costs, lots of different things they have to do in order to pass particular tests that may seem a little bit burdensome to some business owners. And maybe the Republicans could come in and say, hey, we're actually going to reduce the amount of government spending here and cut down on some regulation and therefore open up a little bit more capital that these business owners don't have to spend on these erroneous or sometimes over-the-top administrative things and give it back to their employees or put it back into improving their business so they get more revenue. And imagine what happens if miss Fleming is able to get a little bit extra money and therefore could probably hire someone to watch her child on more short notice because she can offer a little bit of higher pay now of course that doesn't fix the main issue which is her boss isn't you know telling her that oh this is the work schedule far enough in advance but maybe there are other alternatives that can help solve the externalities caused by that decision by the boss all right so let's jump to our final article Talking about externalities and kind of economic stuff, let's jump to this one that comes from the New York Times. China stocks slump as economic gloom spreads. So for those of you who have been paying attention to China, you probably know or at least have some idea of what's going on. For those that you have have not, let's give a quick rundown, a quick summary. So they come out of covid their a currency, their markets have been artificially suppressed for a long time. So they started running hot pretty soon. But a lot of employment didn't come back. A lot of students who are getting out of college couldn't find good jobs. And you're starting to see, actually, instead of inflation like you have seen in this country, you're seeing deflation. The value of the currency inside the country is going down. And this is because there's not a lot of consumer spending. A lot of people aren't going out and buying some new cars. They're not necessarily spending as much at the grocery store as the Chinese government would like them to. And there's also been some a little shakes and some wobbles in their real estate market. So, China is starting to feel the effects. Their stocks are in their companies that are represented on the Hong Kong index are starting to spiral downward. And Xi Jinping had a plan, but we'll see if what he proposed is actually going to work. Speaking of that plan, I'll read the first article or the first paragraph from the article. Quote, about three weeks ago, at a meeting chaired by Xi Jinping, China's leader, officials an acknowledged that China's economy was facing di- new difficulties and challenges. According to the official Xinhua news agency, summary of the Politburo meeting, officials promised to juice the economy, which had started to rebound at the start of the year after COVID restrictions were lifted, but then had begun struggling. The economic troubles they had arose from flagging domestic demand and a grim and complex global economy, among other factors. Chinese stocks jumped at the time, even though officials laid out only vague plans, like using counter-cycle regulations or adjusting policies for the troubled real estate sector and prodding people to buy cars, electronics, and household goods, end quote. And what they're saying here is that what I just described. They're trying to prevent this deflation. They're trying to spur consumer consumption. And this is something that has really helped the Chinese economy grow. Not only have they brought more people out of poverty through some of their more centralized working arrangements in urban cities, therefore allowing more people to have more disposable income and then they can buy more things, therefore spurring the consumption part of their economy. They're also having, you know, they had supply chain issues there for a little bit, They're having a kind of a trade war at this point with the United States. So external consumption as well is down as well as internal consumption. And maybe you could prop up your market by having internal consumption. We've kind of done it here in the U.S. for a long time. But when internal consumption starts going down, you have deflation. And external consumption, the people coming to you to produce their goods or buy things from you in China... That is a one-two punch that is going to be devastating for the Chinese economy. Now, let's be clear. They've had devastating numbers before, and they've come out of it okay. But also that's based on numbers that they provide. And can you necessarily trust the numbers that are coming out of a communist Basically, dictatorship at this point, because Xi Jinping found a way to be the leader once again, and he's practically going to be the leader of China for life at this point. Can you really trust those numbers when they throw officials who are being malfeasant in jail for not completing their duties? That kind of creates an incentive system where the officials are going to fake the numbers at the local and regional level in order to appear to the party in Beijing that, hey, no, 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 we're getting all our goals done. We're getting everything that you want done. I promise everything's okay. So it's not even that they're trying to fake it on a national level. It's that the incentive structure is so perverse within the system that they just tend to have fake Numbers. So we'll see how everybody comes out of this. I would keep watching some stocks. Maybe look at Keep Alibaba locked in on your trading desk, or maybe some of the larger tech companies uh, like uh, Tencent, I believe, is the one I was trying to think of. They used to have or still have a controlling interest in TikTok. So maybe throw them in your stock app and just see what's happening there. And maybe any companies that you have in your portfolio that are kind of related, that have some manufacturing in China, keep an eye on them and just see what happens. It's not financial advice. I just It's interesting. And If you want to stay up to date on it, that's one way to get a little bit more real-time information than listening to someone in their apartment talk about these issues. All right, let's jump to our daily delight. And, you know, this one was a really, really cute one. So have you ever fallen asleep in someone else's bed? I want you to imagine that. You've actually, you know, you're out late at night and you just stumble into somebody else's house and then you fall asleep in their bed. I don't know anybody that's done that. I haven't done that myself. But that's kind of what happened here with this young bear. Quote, recently researchers with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services spotted a black bear nestled in a unique place. It was curled up in a massive bald eagle's nest in Alaska, end quote. And, you know, honestly, when I saw this, it really reminded me of something that you might see in the stories that you heard as a kid. Like Goldilocks, where she stumbles into the bear's houses. This is the opposite. The bear's stumbling into the eagle's houses. And if you want to see this cute little guy nuzzled up, nuzzled up in this cute little nest, then you can go to the link in the description below that like and subscribe button where I have this article and all of today's articles, as well as down there the links to the podcast on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Google Podcasts, Podvine, and the Twitter handle at Daily Flip where I post Twitter tirades every Tuesday and Thursday. A little bit less scripted. I don't necessarily have articles. I kind of just talk about issues that I'm seeing at the time. There's a nice piece that goes well with what I was talking about here in the last article that I put up yesterday that talks about the youth bulge and how a lot of young people in China are going through a hard time. But I won't go into that too much. You can go over there to see it. And with all that said, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.